This is Rabbi Josh Uter of the Stanton Street Shul. Thank you for downloading this class podcast. These classes are provided free of charge through the generosity of the Stanton Street Shul community and supporters like you. If you do enjoy them, please consider making a donation to our synagogue's building fund on our website's shop donate page at www.stantonstshul.com. Good evening. It is Wednesday, March 5th, 2014. This is the final week in our current Jewish question series on Sugulot Simanim and superstitions. Uh, and this week we're going to get a little bit back to basics, uh, for things that we introduced in week one in terms of some of, some of the more practical or halachic ramifications of the things that we've been talking about. Uh, as a brief recap, what we've seen up until now is that there is no real consistency regarding the distinction between a superstition and regarding something that's an authentic part of the Jewish tradition. We've seen lots of different things that by today's rational standard, we can say, well, that sounds like superstition, or that sounds you know, foreign to Judaism, but it's in the Talmud. Um, and we're going to see a bunch more examples today that will re- really hammer this point home. Uh, and as I said in the first week, for as much as I would love to present a clear-cut formula of why this is okay and that's not okay, I can't. Um, the best I can you know, possibly come up with is give a certain bias. Well, this was okay for you know Chazal, the rabbinic sages, but anything after that, well, you know, no one really has the authority to do so. But that's you know that reflects some of my own personal bias in terms of well, where do you draw the line? Why is you know that okay and something else not okay? But again, I don't know. For now, I'm entitled to my biases, but this is not a the, the intent here isn't a matter of psak. It's not not trying to tell people this is okay. This isn't okay in a universalistic global sense only to show just how difficult trying to make these distinctions are going to be and while people will certainly try to make these distinctions and try to show how like the stuff that their own tradition might have accepted is okay making it difficult to reject stuff from others just how much arbitrariness is going to come in in terms of the things that you're accustomed to those are fine the things that you're not those are no good uh, to some extent, you kind of see it today in terms of other sorts of halachic innovation. But as we also said in week one, the risk here with matters of, you know, segulot simonim and superstition is if you're doing it wrong, you run the risk of violating avodah zara in some way. So, you know, this isn't, you know, when you're talking about co- potential consequences, you know, avodah zara is not trivial. Uh, but at the same token, how do we draw the line? Don't know. And if you, you know, weren't already, um, I don't want to say confused, but if you weren't already convinced, uh, we got a whole bunch more sources. Hey, some really fun stuff here. So I know I made a reference to, uh, to this in one of the earlier classes, and now we'll see it inside. Josh, yeah. start us off with first Mishnah Shabbat 6-2. A man may not go out with a nail-studded sandal, nor with a single sandal. If he has no wound on his foot, nor if he has no wound on his foot, nor with fillin, nor with an amulet, if it is not from an expert, nor oh, not an amulet, it's not from an expert, nor with a coat of mail, sheer young, nor with a cask, casca, nor with greaves, megaphim, megaphim. Yet, if he goes out, he does not incur a sin offering. All right, so we're going to focus on the kamea. 
the amulet part. So read the Gemara on this Mishish about 61a. Okay, nor with an amulet. If it is not from an expert, Rav Papa said, do not think that both the man issuing it and the amulet must be approved. But as long as the man is approved, even if the amulet is not approved, this may be proved too, too, for it is stated, nor with an amulet, if it is not from an expert. But it is not stated if it is not approved. This proves it. Our rabbis taught, what is an approved amulet? One that has healed once, a second time, and a third time. Whether it is an amulet in writing or an amulet of roots. So here, the Gemara seems to, and based on the Mishnah, you um, can only go out wearing an amulet, which according to this Gemara was used for healing purposes, if it is an approved amulet, or at least, you know, a demumcha gavra umumcha kamer, two distinction here. One is on the person who's making the amulet, and the other is, does this specific amulet work? How do you know if it works? If it, if it worked three times. Like the rain thing that we talked about. Exactly. Right. So it works three times. So again, you can say this as A, you know, this is their scientific method. So we said before, one of the components of scientific, of the scientific method of proving if something is, you know, scientifically accurate is, is it reproducible? Right. So it could be they said, well, this works, so Oh, and it worked three times. Good enough for us. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you're writing an amulet to heal people, mm-hmm. right? This does not really seem to be Jewish, or at least as we conceive of Judaism today, right? So, yeah, that you know might have to be addressed at some point by some people, but at least in the time of the Gemara, this seemed fine. Uh, Risa, take the Gemara in Chulin 77b to 78a. Abaya and Rava both stated, whatever is done for medicinal purposes is not prohibited, prohibited as Amorite practices, and whatever is not done for medicinal purposes is prohibited as Amorite practices. So we'll see uh, in Hebrew, it's a Darkei HaEmori of Amorite practices. Uh, we'll see some more examples of this in a later source in this class. The distinction that Reva and Abaye both agree on this, by the way, right? know that they argued quite a bit throughout the Talmud, both say, well, if it's called of our Sheyishbo Refuah, if it's something there that has a healing component to it, Einbo Mishum Darkei Amori then it's not an idolatrous practice. Or, um, idolatrous might be weird. Uh, some people use pagan practice you know, as a way of ways of the Amorites. But doesn't this also seem kind of strange? Meaning, again, it doesn't matter what you do as long as it actually works mm-hmm. or you know, can actually heal people. You can see how people might take this into some crazy you know, uh, reductio-like arguments to some ridiculous conclusion. It's like, well, you know, we did blah, 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 and it heals, right? On the other hand, right, you know, the big question that we have with science is, uh, oh, I'm blanking on the quote, uh, how certain advanced forms of science are indistinguishable from magic. Who said that? You read sci-fi. I do, but I don't know the quote. Uh, uh, it's, yeah, that's, that's, um, yeah, that's gonna haunt me for Sorry. a couple hours. No, not your fault. I'm the one with a weird memory. Um, I know it came up in the really horrible movie, The Box. I didn't see The Box. A, I know what it's about. It's a really strange, strange yeah. movie, and they made a big <laughs> deal about that. 
weirdness. Anyway, here's a Gemara in Sanhedrin 101a. Rav Abba said to Rabbi Barmari, it is written, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, uh, which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. But since he hath brought no disease, what is their need? Uh, what need is there of a cure? He replied, Rav Yochanan said this verse is self-explanatory, because the whole reads, and he said, if you will diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord your God, if you will hearken, I will not bring disease upon you. But if you will not, I will. Yet even so, I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now you might recall, this was the verse that you are not allowed to expectorate over when you're actually, you know, to spit over. Right? Remember we saw, you know, with that whole healing thing, the problem with the spitting, but it's, you know, it's apparently like using this verse, mm-hmm. in your, mm, right, alone might be fine. There are also a bunch of non-metaphysical superstitions. Um, and he first we'll begin um, with some stuff about uh, from Abaye and Abaye's mother, technically his stepmother. Um, but she's got a whole bunch of old wives' tales in the Gemara. So here are a few from a Gemara in Shabbat 66b. Abaye said, Mother told me all incantations which are repeated several times must contain the name of the patient's mother and all knocks must be on the left hand. Left hand? Question? <laughs> uh, yeah, I just put that in from the footnote here. Incidentally, from the Sincino. Incidentally, um uh, in, uh, which will, incidentally, the thing here where um, Abai says that uh, you throw, you mention the um, uh, name of the mother, you might notice that when we say Misha Barracks mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. we do so and so, the son of or daughter of the mother, mm-hmm. as opposed to when someone gets an Aliyah, it's usually the father. I mean, there's some people who say you know father and mother. But usually, I mean, by default, when it comes for an aliyah, goes by the father. A whole bunch of other things, father. Misha Barak's that prayer for when people are ill, mm-hmm. we go by the mother. Yeah. Um, I don't have definitive proof that this is where it's from, but it makes a whole lot of sense that that's where we got it from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Abaye also said, Mother told me, of all incantations, the number of times they are to be repeated is as stated. And where the number is not stated, it is 41 times. Mm-hmm. Okay. Our rabbis taught, one may go out with a, with a preserving stone on the Sabbath. On the authority of Rabbi Meir, it was said, even with the counterweight of a preserving stone, and not only when one has miscarried, but even for fear, lest she miscarry, and not only when she is already pregnant, but even lest she, became, she become pregnant and miscarry. Rabbi Yem, Yemer ben Shal, Shalmiya said on Abaye's authority, Provided that it was found to be its natural counterweight, Abai asked, what about the counterweight of the counterweight? The question stands over. Right, so here there's something that you carry on Shabbat, or at least you could uh, go out on Shabbat carrying it, in order to prevent miscarriages. Now... I'm, again, not a scientist. To my knowledge, there's no such thing that actually works that's been demonstrated by medical evidence in any way, shape, or form. Um, yes, and because of... Uh, no, I'm not even going to... No, well, no, not going to say it, not going to say it. No, well, I, it, yeah, continue. Next paragraph. Abai also said, Mother told me, for a daily fever, one must take a white zuz, go to a salt deposit, take its weight in salt, and tie it up in the nape of the neck with a white twisted cord. But if this is not possible, 
Let one sit at the crossroads, and when he sees a large ant carrying something, let him take and throw it into a brass tube and close it with lead, and seal it with sixty seals. Let him shake it, lift it up, and say to it, Thy burden be upon me, and my burden be upon thee. Yeah. (laughs) Now, again, this seems very unscientific. (laughs) It seems very superstitious. But is it really that much crazier than the stories you hear from your grandparents who came out of Europe? Like certain home remedies or home ailments that might not do anything. This is why you have that TV show Mythbusters. Mm-hmm. When you have these you know, traditions or these expressions, and then they actually say, well, let's try it out. Does mm-hmm. this in fact work? Yeah, you know, a lot of the home, home remedies do work. Some do. Not. I mean, do you want to try this one? No. Okay, then. Trade right. with an ant. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, you see what happens. Um, you know, and they, look, there are things that you know, people might have gotten right but might not necessarily have known, well, why did this work? And that's, you know, I get that, you know. But still, it makes it somewhat difficult today, you know, when someone says, you know, if someone wants to be super strict on this, it's like, oh, you know, we can't do that just like to us. Like, if you're going to compare it on wackiness, or you're going to compare it on bad science, or you're going to compare, you know, on some weird, I mean, I use the term here, non-metaphysical superstitions, but I have no idea how this stuff works. Maybe this was the science of their day. Let's say your science, you know, gets more improved, and for that we'll have, you know, separate series of classes on that too. But this is just wisdom that he got from his mother. Is it accurate? Well, we know today that it's not. Um... Uh, well, actually, I shouldn't say that because I honestly have not done a double-blind test study of like trying to experiment that. Um, but I'm going to assume for the moment that it does not actually work, and we don't have an actual zuz, let alone a white one. Um, what is this? A unit of currency. Uh, if you want to know how much it is, it's worth half a goat. Yep. <laughs> well, Chad Gaja, how much did you get the the goat for? Mm. Two zuzim. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, true. That's a joke I got from Ruf Tendler because the idiom of matayim zuz of two hundred zuzim. He said, "Oh, how much is that? A hundred goats, yeah. right?" Because you know that from Chad Gaja. Mm-hmm. So when you calculate matayim zuz, just go to the market today. Whatever. Yeah, he meant that as a yes. He he was not saying that seriously. It's not just a conversion rate. <laughs> no, it is not a conversion rate at all. Right? Whatever a hundred goats is, do that anyway. Um, okay, so now we get some other cool, wacky stuff discussions here. Risa, this is prohibited, permitted acts, and other examples. First, let's go to a Gemara and Sanhedrin 65a. Rava asked him, but is not burning incense to a demon idolatry? But Rava said, for example, the Baal... Ov. Ov. In Karithot. In Karithot refers to one who burns incense as a charm. Abaya said to him, But burning incense as a charm is tagged as a charmer, which is merely prohibited by a negative precept. That is so, but the Torah decreed that such a charmer is stoned. So we have like a certain definition here about burning incense to demons, where even if it might not be actual avodazara, uh, it's still bad enough that you get stoned for it. So that even if you want to say that it's not the, the technical definition of idolatry, you still are going to get killed for it. Like, you can get killed for lots of things that aren't idolatry. Continue. Our advice to 
There should not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or daughter pass through the fire, or a charmer. This applies to one who charms large objects and to one who charms small ones, even snakes and scorpions. Abaya said, Therefore, even to imprison wasps or scorpions by charms, though the intention is to prevent them from doing harm, is forbidden. Yeah, I don't know exactly how do you charm this stuff. I mean, today you've got trainers. I don't know if, you know, that, no one charms dogs, right? You, you train dogs. Uh, I don't know how well you actually train snakes. It's never come up in the rabbinet for me so far. Um, yeah. You do train snakes, though. I thought the Indian thing. I get well. That could be what they're referring to here with the with the you know charming stuff. Um, let's move on. Um, you know, there's another distinction here. Of uh, oh, I do the next paragraph here. Yeah, I continue the last one. Now, as for Rabbi Yochanan, why does he maintain that in the view of the rabbis, the bending of one's body in prostration is an action? whilst the movement of the lips is not. Rabbah said, Blasphemy is different since the offense lies in the intention. So there's a distinction here in terms of what's considered an action and what isn't considered an action. In Jewish law, you're only uh, punished in court through having committed something that involves an action. And speech isn't considered an action. All right? A whole other discussion we can have on that. The remark in Sanhedrin continues in 66a. Uh, we saw part of this. Abchanina Ravoshi has uh, spent every Shabbat studying the book of creation by means of which they created a third grown calf and ate it. You might remember that from week one. This was the permitted idolatry that the Gemara talked about. Our rabbis taught the Me'onein. Uh, Reb Shimon said, that is one who applies the semen of seven male species to his eyes in order to perform witchcraft. The sages say, it is one who holds people's eyes. Reb Yekiva said, it is one who calculates the times and hours, saying, today it is propitious uh, for setting forth, tomorrow for making purchases, the wheat ripening on the eve of the seventh year is generally sound, let beans be pulled up instead of being harvested in the usual manner to save them from being worthy. Uh, our rabbis taught uh, Menachesh is one who says quote, so and so's bread has fallen out of his hand, his staff has fallen out of his hand, his son has called after him, a raven screamed after him a deer crossed his path, a serpent came at his right hand or a fox at his left, do not commence with me it is morning, it is new boon, it is the conclusion it is the conclusion of Shabbat. So of the ones you know mentioned here uh, to me the ones that seem the most relevant are the ones who look for signs, omens, and portents in otherwise very trivial actions. Like, well, why did so, you know, something, ah, something happened, therefore, here's what you need to look out for, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there are people out there who do this sort of thing. Um, Gamara's not a huge fan of that. Josh, continue. Gemara Sanhedrin 67b. Also, the thing oh, is, sorry. sorry, from before, mm-hmm. saying uh, when we calculate the times now, we're saying today is propitious um, for setting forth, things like that. Sounds a lot like those uh, newspaper zodiac prediction things, doesn't it? Why, uh, yes. Or, uh, uh, you mean in terms of astrology? Yeah. Um, astrology seems to come under a different category mm-hmm. uh, because, again, with astrology, 
at least the way, I mean, I don't think I include it so much here. I've got a whole separate class on Mazel itself. Mm-hmm. Seemed to be part of their science about how they thought the world worked. This seems to be some weirder type of appeal. Um, I mean, by today's standards, I mean, yes, astrology isn't a science. Back then, they kind of thought it was. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think there may be a distinction, even though there's a clear similarity of, well, you know, this is a good sign for that, and this is, you know, something else is a good sign for something else. Mm -hmm. Um, And remember, we saw a whole bunch of those, you know, a few weeks ago with what's considered a siman. Right now, what do you do with those? You know, the Gemara that we had on all those simanim, where something is a sign for something else, and a whole bunch of other, you know, all of these things that are mentioned in this Gemara and Sanhedrin. What's the real difference between them? Mm-hmm. You're looking at an action. And you're saying, well, this action has, or is going to have, or this action signifies a consequence that is not necessarily related by normal cause effect. Right. Normal cause effect is I drop this pen and it's going to fall down. Ha! Look at that, right? But the non-natural one is, well, if I drop this pen, then it means there's going to be an earthquake in Mexico. Mm -hmm. That's a much bigger stretch, Mm -hmm. right? Now, what's the difference between these examples and the Gemars that we saw on Simanen? No idea. I warned you, I'm going to give you more questions than answers with this one. 67B, Sanhedrin. Rabbi Abai ben Nagri said, in the name of Rauhia Barava, Belatehem? Belatehem. Belatehem refers to magic through the agency of demons. Belatehem to sorcery without outside help. Belatehem, meaning there are two words here. There's Belatehem and Belatehem, the uh, insertion of the letter A. So there's a distinction here between what they call Ma'ase Shedim and Ma'ase Keshafim, which according to this Sensino is, one is the appeal to the work of demons. These would be those other metaphysical beings floating around somehow. And the other is Kishuf, uh, or you know, a different type of sorcery. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and thus it is also said, and the flame of the sword that turns of itself. Abaye said, the sorcerer who insists on exact paraphernalia works through demons. He who does not work by pure enchantment. Again, how does he know this? I don't know. Right? The assumption is like, you know, uh, you've probably seen some fantasy stuff, right? Where you've got, you know, the, you, you've seen like wizard paraphernalia, right? So according to Abaye, all that stuff means they're accomplishing their sorcery through agency of demons. Mm-hmm. Okay, continue. Abaye said the law of sorcerers are like those right. of the Sabbath. Yeah, we've seen that before, so we can yeah, we can skip that because okay. yeah, that's that last part about, you know, the things that are forbidden, permitted and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Again, what are the distinctions between them? Couldn't tell you. Risa Gemar Bavabatra seventy three A. Rabba said, Seafarers told me the way that sinks a ship appears with a white fringe of fire at its crest. And when stricken with clubs on which is engraven, I am that I am. Yeah, the Lord of hosts. Amen, amen, Salah. It subsides. Now, what do you call this? You write a certain verse on a staff. Uh, anyone here watch Lost and the whole Jesus stick thing? 
Lost and the whole Jesus. I watched Lost. I don't remember the Jesus. Uh, one uh, Locke had a Jesus stick. I mean, or, or was it Echo? One of those had like oh. a stick with like the various verses on there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah don't. No, that is something which you know. I understand. Like, not everyone gets my references. Never watch Lost if you haven't seen it. Do not bother. Okay. Right. That that is as much of a psak I can give. <laughs> Reason being. In the last episode, which a lot of people disliked, wasn't just that it was a bad episode. They basically said that the main plot drivers for the first three seasons were completely irrelevant. That's bad storytelling, which is partially explained by the fact that they made a lot of it up as they went along. Yep. It was not like when they started it, they led mysteries and, oh, we know what it's going to be. Just like, oh, yeah, that'll do it. And you just leave too many things hanging. Horrible, horrible, horrible storytelling. The point is, though, that there was a staff that had a bunch of quotes on it. And here, there's a quote where if you write certain things on a staff and you beat it against a certain type of wave, it's going to subside. Now, what would you call this? Unlikely. <laughs> well, well, you say unlikely. Here's something that Rob is saying is that seafarers told him. Mm-hmm. Now, whether or not this is halakhically, you know, permitted, right, because you're using, you know, God's name, uh, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, you know, Shem Tzavod, I mean, you know, that's using God's name on there, right, to, you know, basically create a magic wand, little strange, yeah. little strange here, um, Gemara Sanhedrin 101a, nor may demons be consulted on Sabbath, so keep that in mind, by the way, no talking to demons on Shabbat. Right. So keep out of the shade. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to ask if she'll invest in, like, you know, drums or, like, a rimshot button here. Well, I mean, an applause sign is a little tacky, um, but, like, just a little fun for... Anyway. Uh, so, Rabiosi said, this is forbidden even on weekdays. Ravuna said, the halacha is not as Rabiosi, and even he said it only account of its danger. As it is said of Rav Isaac ben Joseph, who was swallowed up in a cedar tree, but a miracle was wrought for him, the cedar splitting and casting him forth. So apparently, there's a dispute here, and according to another opinion, you are, in fact, allowed to talk to demons during the week, just don't do it on Shabbat. Yeah, Um, and I'm, you know... Yeah, you know, if I was married, this would be like a great opportunity to throw in like a dig at, you know, in-laws. But not going to do that, right? Talk to demons. Go right. And there is a, you know, a, some fair amount of demonology you'll find in the Gemara. Beginning of Shabbos has stuff. Psachim towards the end has a bunch of stuff. So, here, yeah, go ahead. Talk to them. Josh, Gemara, Shabbat 66b. Abin ben Huna said in the name of Rabhama ben Guria, the placing of a hot cup upon the navel of Sabbath is permitted. Abin ben Huna also said in the name of Rabhaba ben Guria, one may rub in oil and salt on the Sabbath. Like Rab Huna at Rav's, at Rav's college, and Rav at Rauchia's, and Rauchia's at, at Rabbi's, when they felt the effect of the wine, they would bring oil and salt and rub into the palms of their hands and the instep of their feet and say, just as this oil is becoming clear, so let so-and-so's wine become clear. And if, the, and if this was not possible, they would bring the ceiling of clay of a wine vessel and soak it in water and say, 
Just as this clay becomes clear, so let so and so's wine become clear. So perm's coming up, right? People don't, you know, don't want to mess with, you know, the hangover. Um, yeah, you got a couple of options here. Again, seem a little weird. Yeah. Now, on one hand, you can say, like we saw earlier on, well, because it's for healing purposes, you know, maybe it's not dark amori. Um, hmm. Right, but it seemed to, you know, you have how to put this. Even if you know you don't have rabbis saying like you should do this, or even if they're they're just being descriptive, mm-hmm. not prescriptive. They're just telling you, well, here's what people would do. You know, without the explicit criticism, like it's almost like, yeah, we used to do this, and the assumption is, well, yeah, and it's fine, unless like they actually, you know, say otherwise. I guess people are going, it's like, yeah, we used to do that. So you're talking about, you know, Tanaim and Amoraim, who would engage in things that if you know a rabbi would get up and do it today, <coughs> you'd think he's an insane cabalist. Mm-hmm. Right, or, you know, one of those wacky types of people who shuns actual medical tradition in favor of this stuff because somehow this actually works. Um, anyway, Gemara Brachot 62a. Rabbi Tanam Ben Hanalai said, Whoever behaves modestly and a privy is delivered from three things from snakes, from scorpions, and from evil spirits. Some say also that he will not have disturbing dreams. There was a certain privy in in Tiberias, which if two people entered together, even by day, they came to to home. Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi used to enter it separately, and they suffered no harm. The rabbi said to them, Are you not afraid? They replied, We have learned a certain tradition. The tradition for avoiding harm in the privy is modesty and silence. The tradition relating to sufferings is silence and prayer. The mother of Abaya trained for him a lamb to go with him into the privy. She should rather have trained for him a goat. A satyr might be changed into a goat. Before Rava became head of the academy, the daughter of Rabbi Hista used to rattle a knot in a brass dish. After he became head, she made a window for him and put her hand on his head. Yeah, I'm not even going to begin to try this. Look, the point's been made, I think, at this point. Uh, we can't even skip the next couple of sources here. Uh, so let's move on to somewhat of a big one here. I mentioned about Dark Amori, um, literally the ways of the Amorites. And this is a, you know, some discussion on this in the Gemara. You've got Mishnah and Shabbat 610. It says, one may go out with a hargol's egg, a fox's tooth, and a nail from the gallows of an impaled convict as a prophylactic. This is her mayor's view. But the sages forbid this even on weekdays on account of, quote, the ways of the Amorite. Now, Gamar explains in a little more detail. Uh, one may go out with a hargol's egg, which is carried for earache, fox's tooth, which is worn on account of sleep, and a living fox's for one who sleeps too much, a dead fox for one who cannot sleep. Nail from the gallows of an impaled convict, this applies to an inflammation. Prophylactic, this is of Mayer's view. Rabbi and Rava both maintain whatever is used as a remedy is not forbidden on account of the ways of the Amorite. And if it is not an obvious remedy, 
city, it is, is it forbidden on account of the ways of the Amorite? But surely it was taught, if a tree casts its fruit, one paints uh, with a with sikra, red paint, and loads it with stones. Now, for loading it with stones, that is in order to lessen its strength, meaning it casts fruit because they are too heavy uh, and affects the tree's vitality. But when he paints it with sikra, what remedy does he affect? Meaning it's only magic. That is, in order that people may see and pray for it. Even as it was taught, and he the leper shall cry, unclean, unclean, he must make his grief publicly known, so that the public may pray for him. Ravina observed, in accordance with whom do we suspend a cluster of dates on a sterile tree? In accordance with this Tana. So we have somewhat, again, of a dispute here over Darke Amari, uh, sort of fleshed out from what we saw earlier. So we have this mentioning of Dark Amari. We have Rava Nabai says that it's not forbidden if it actually works, though you've got the opinions in the Mishnah uh, from the Chachamim that don't seem to hold of that. I Meaning it does seem to be a, or at least a dispute, such that this other stuff is in accordance with Rav Meir, who seems to be of the opinion, hey, if it works, it works. Atana recited the chapter of Amorite practices. It's uh, chapter 7 and 8 of this Tosefta, before Rechia Barabin. Said he to him, all of these are forbidden as Amorite practices except the following. If you have a bone in your throat... You may bring of that kind, place it on its head and say, one by one go down, swallow, go down one by one. This is not considered the way of the Amorite. For fishbone he should say thus, thou art stuck like a pin, thou art locked up as within a cuirass. Go down, go down. Uh, he who says, be lucky, my luck, God Gideon, tire not by day or night, is guilty of Amorite practices. Rebuta says, God is none other but an idolatrous term. For it is said, Ye that prepare a table for God. Uh, G-A-D, I should say, not G-O-D, if anyone's listening here. Uh, and he's citing uh, Isaiah 65.2. If husband and wife exchange their names, they are guilty of Amorite practices. So, any, like, hardcore feminists out there where couples where they married and they hyphenate, both mm-hmm. of them hyphenate their names? <laughs> Ways of the Amorite. I... Don't take that seriously, by the way. Uh, to say, be strong, O ye barrels, is forbidden as the ways of the Amorite. Rev. Judah said, Don, barrel, is none other but the designation of an idol. For it is said, they that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, as thy God Don liveth, from Amos 8.14. He who says to a raven, scream, and to a she-raven, screech, and for turn me, thy tuft for my good, is guilty of the Amorite practices. He who says, kill this cock because a crow in the evening, later than usual, a crowed like a raven, or this fowl because a crowed like a cock is guilty of Amorite practices. He who says, I will drink and leave over, I will drink and leave over, so the rest may be blessed, is guilty of the ways of the Amorite. He who breaks eggs on a wall in front of fledglings is guilty of Amorite practices. Who stirs eggs before fledglings is guilty of Amorite practices. He who dances and counts 71 fledglings in order that should not die is guilty of Amorite practices. If you dance for kuta, or impose silence for lentils or cry for beans that they should be prepared is guilty for Amorite practices. If uh, she who urinates before her pot in order that should be quickly cooked is guilty of Amorite practices. Yet one may place a chip of mulberry tree and broken pieces of glass in a pot in order they should boil quickly because that's not an enchantment but the sages forbade broken pieces of glass to be used on account of danger. Now, again, with this entire list what makes these bad and everything else that we saw 
just fine. <laughs> no idea. Slot information. Yes. We also have some important exceptions to Dark Murray. Oh, okay. Mishnah Sanhedrin 7.3. Uh, execution by the sword was performed thus. The condemned man was decapitated by the sword, as is done by the civil authorities. Rabbi Yehuda said, This is a hideous disfigurement, but his head was laid on a block and severed with an axe. They replied, No death is more disfiguring than this. All right. So there are four ways of, four methods of capital punishment of execution in Jewish law. Discuss in a little greater detail in the Gemara and Sanhedrin 52b. Okay. It has been taught, Rabbi Yehuda said to the sages, I too know that this is a death of repulsive disfigurement. But what can I do? Seeing that the Torah hath said, Neither shall ye walk in their ordinance, neither shall ye walk in the ordinances. But the rabbis maintain, since scripture decreed the sword, we do not Im- imitate them when using their method. For if you for if you will not agree to this, then how about that which which was taught? Pyres may be lit in honor of deceased kings, and this is not forbidden as being of the ways of the Amorites. But why so? Is it not written, neither shall ye walk in their ordinances? But because this is bur- but because this burning is referred to in the Bible as it is written, but thou shalt die in peace. And with the burnings of and, and with the burnings of thy fathers, so shall they burn for thee. It is not from them, the, the heathens, that we derive the practice. So here too, since the Torah decreed the sword, it is not from them, the Romans, that we derive the practice. So an important halacha here that has wide, you know, ramifications, where execution by the sword, they say, well, look, these non-Jews do it. Or, hey, you know, setting up a funeral pyre for kings. Well, that seems to be a non-Jewish practice. Like, well, no. When you actually have, like, a biblical commandment for this sort of thing, or it's mentioned in the Bible as, you know, being okay, then you're not getting it from your non-Jewish or pagan or whatever rituals that are external. You can cite chapter as well, here's what God wants you to do. Right? Which case it's no longer a Derech Amori because you have this tradition for it. So someone once asked me years back, um, since the Catholics use wine as part of their communion, how do we use wine for Kiddush? Right? Isn't that copying the way? So, well, you know, one, you know, we don't do it because they do it. We do it because it goes back to the Gemara. And if you're constantly, you know, going to look over your shoulder, then you're having your religious practice dictated by someone else. And as soon as they do it, you can't. And where do you draw the line? Like, if they breathe oxygen, we breathe oxygen. It's kind of hard to get past that, you know, all sorts of things here. So, an important exception to Darke Emori, right? And the explanation here seems less about intrinsic idolatrous, but rather there was a specific culture, certain rituals that were done by I can't even say the secular world because remember, and we covered this a bit in the Politics of Exclusion uh, series, where is only in you know the more modern time where the opposite of being religious was being secular. Right? So here, the opposite of being religious in one religion was really being religious of another religion. You didn't have this, you know, sense of secularity in the same way that we do today. So where it comes to matters of religion, right, it has to come from Torah. Right? As long as it comes from Torah, you're fine, regardless about what other people happen to do. Okay? Um, 
So that's an important exception th- with things like Darke Amori. What do you do with other things? So like one thing that comes up, we speak about every year, is Kaparot. According to Shulchan Aruch, uh, Rav Yosef Karim, the Beit Yosef, citing Ramban, the act of Kaparot, swinging the chicken over your head, is Darke Amori. Mm. That's what he said. People still do it. There was a guy in Israel this past year who wanted to ban it. Um, and people got really, you know, uptight. It's like, you know, how can you? It's a whole tradition. It was like, well, if it is Darke Amari, your, your tradition's wrong and, and needs to be stopped. Uh, I also pointed out that, you know, well, that's a separate digression. Don't want to go on that. Anyway, the point is, you know, we, there's no nothing in the Torah that talks about Kaparot, either biblical or rabbinic tradition, which meant someone at some point had to have made it up that's just how things are you don't assume that it went all the way back there that's a myth that you want to tell yourself to give it legitimacy because it really existed back then it's your burden to demonstrate like hey where do you find it where did it come from you don't like that's where the burden of proof lies um especially when you're coming up with these brand new rituals that seem to indicate something that's you know certainly not of jewish origin now you could say it's similar to the azazel right to the scapegoat that we send out in the desert but again the difference there is azazel is mentioned in the torah chicken over your head isn't now for as much as you want to say that's an arbitrary distinction from this gemara in sanhedrin 52b that's the only distinction that matters if it's in the torah it's not going to be dark Yamari because we believe that this came from god right now again formulas for why some things are okay and some things are not okay i have no clue at all uh i'm sure other people might want to try um but I don't feel comfortable even venturing a guess because it's whatever you'd like to come up with is very easy to you know disprove just by one example. It's like, well, what about that? You know, that seems to be okay. I don't know. Um, but as a final thought, I have this Gemara in Sanhedrin uh, from 67b. Um, uh, somewhat relevant because you know Pesach is coming up, um, and the frog came up and it covered the land of Egypt. Revelazar said it was one frog which bred prolifically and filled the land. This is a matter disputed by Tanaim. Rabbi Akiva said there was one frog which filled the whole world of Egypt by breeding. It says Vitalat Svardea in the singular. So according to Rabbi Akiva, hey, you know what? It was just one. First, it was just one big frog, and then it had a whole bunch of other little frogs. All right. Revelazar bin Azariah said to him, Akiva, what do you have to do with Haggadah? Cease thy words and devote thyself to leprosy's tents. One frog croaked for the others and they came. The reason why I'm putting this in here is, you know, it, it's, I, it, for one hand, it's kind of amusing because you've got like a rabbi who's trying to make a drusha of like a, you know, homiletic is a, you know, that, but like some exegetical, you know, drusha. He basically goes, yeah, stick to halacha, hmm. right? You're just not not good with this. Um, which is an amusing gemara in its own right for a whole bunch of other reasons. Uh, but for me, it's, you know, the reason why I'm including it here is that it shows that you're dealing with a lot of homiletical material, which itself, you know, needs to be, is not so simple to understand. Uh, like Maimonides says, like, you, you can't really take it all at pure face value. You can't just dismiss everything out of hand either. 
there's a lot that you can read into pretty much anything that we've done now. You could read into it that they were hyper-rationalists. You could read into it that they did the best that they could with the science of their day. You could read into it that they were, you know, the rabbinic sages were sensitive to mystical truths that we don't know. And even if they didn't say so explicitly, that undercurrent dictated a lot of things that they said. No idea at all. The problem is, when it comes to actual halacha, what are you supposed to do, right? My general approach is, well, the first thing is, if you want to say that you have to do something, we have to prove how it's either a biblical or rabbinic obligation. That's relatively easy to do. The question is, for all of this other stuff that comes up, it, you know, let's say, you know, baking a key in challah, right? There's no mitzvah to do that at all. It's neither a biblical commandment nor a rabbinic commandment. The question then becomes, is it permitted or should it even be forbidden as doing some wacky, idolatrous thing? I mean, we're not going to even test whether or not it works, right? But that's your real question that you have to be left with. Is it permissible to come up with brand new rituals that you're going to instill with significance? And again, the question is, how seriously do you take it? Uh, you might recall the Shohan Aruch writes, uh, when it comes to Pesach, uh, not Pesach, Rosh Hashanah, right? We make up our own simanim, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know, eating carrots, right? Because carrot in Hebrew is gezer, same root as gzar, so you eat carrots to so avoid gzar dinam, right? Or you eat honey so that you should have a sweet new year. Mm-hmm. How is that really functionally any different than baking a key in the challah? Right? If you're doing it, and that's why I said it the first week, if the more serious you take it, the more of a problem you have. Mm-hmm. That's just my opinion. There's no, I, it, it's more of an intuitive sense. It's not something I'm going to like poskin by, and here's like my source for saying so. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, uh, Riff Tendler, you know, the one that I got from him, a bunch of others say for um, Rosh Hashanah, you have lettuce, half a raisin, and celery. Mm-hmm. So you put it together, lettuce, half a raisin, celery. Right now, doing stuff like I mean, it's great for people like me because you can just come up with crazy puns and like you're actually encouraged to do so, right? But I don't know anyone who really has that deep seated belief that if I don't eat honey, my year's going to be horrible, or if I do eat honey on Rosh Hashanah, my year's going to be amazing. Whereas when it comes to baking a key in challah, what do people you know actually think when they do it? I don't know. Right? If they think it's a cute idea because, I don't know, if they want to improve their iron intake, that's one thing. Uh, you know, but it, from a rational perspective, uh, why would you say one would be better or worse than the other? Mm-hmm. Don't know what to tell you. But if anything else, you know, when these things come up, I mean, like I say before, even if I can't give you a straight answer, and even if I haven't been able to convince people otherwise, hopefully people approach this with a little greater thought, that it's not so simple. Um, I understand, you know, by today's hyper-rationalism, there may be a tendency to dismiss, not just dismiss things, because again, if you don't want to, you don't have to, right? So that's not a matter of dismissive, because at very least it's, you know, custom or whatever. But in terms of, you know, disregarding it as idolatrous, that gets much trickier, simply because 
how you draw that line of what is acceptable folk religion versus unacceptable folk religion is something which I cannot do, at least based just on rabbinic Judaism alone. So there hasn't been, I mean, with the exception of the specific things that are mentioned in the Gemara for, say, Darke Amori, or for other things, I don't know how that would be extrapolated to today. Could it make sense? Sure. Right? Does that mean that it is? Without a Sanhedrin that can actually legislate these things, I don't know. It's one of the reasons why a requirement to be on the Sanhedrin was you had to be a Baal Kishafim. You actually needed expertise in sorcery. Um, yeah, it, it sounds strange, but it makes sense. Because how do you rule on these things unless you understand religion? Right? So in order to be on the Sanhedrin, you needed to know comparative religion, because otherwise you wouldn't be able to make these judgment calls. Why is one okay, one is not okay? We don't have you know, a comprehensive list of things, especially since new stuff pops up all the time. So at any rate, hopefully, like I said before, you're left with more... Qu- if you're not left with more questions, you will know that the question... You will have those questions a little bit more solidified. Uh, and if anyone does you know, come up with an answer or at least a theory or an approach or some framework, I would love to hear it and to see if anyone could do a better job. Uh, for those who are interested in further reading, I know Professor Sperber has a book uh, dedicated to magic in rabbinic literature, uh, which can give like a whole bunch more examples and stuff. Uh, I don't recall if he came up with a set theory over, you know, where, how exactly do you draw the line phenomenologically between, you know, things that would be prohibited, be it idolatry, dark amory, and things that are permitted, if not acceptable or encouraged. No idea there. So with that, have a wonderful week.